really three stages that I think helped me get through everything was accept what has happened and take responsibility for it. You know, don't blame anyone. Don't even blame yourself type of thing, but just accept what has happened. Forgive yourself and all those around you. And then the third one is, you know, letting go of something that no longer serves me. So it's, you know, those three things, you know, through business, through life, now are always my anchor of accept, forgive, let go. Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Kerrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Conversation that I had with a good friend of mine, Kieran McCammon, who's been on the show before, a very successful tech entrepreneur. But what we actually talk about is how he endured a tragic accident in Columbia while he was paragliding, and it resulted in the loss of his arm. He reviews a whole bunch of things that help get him through this, acceptance, forgiveness, and letting go of the things that no longer serve you. It's an amazing story, especially as you prime yourself to the things that you want to accomplish in the new year. Have a wonderful holiday, lots of love, enjoy the show. And when did you have your accident? That was 2006. So we just launched Caboodle. So we'd been developing it for a year. I just launched it and I went on my trip to go paragliding in Columbia as a, a bit of a reward for a year of hard slog. Yeah. Do you want to share that story? Because, I mean, it's really interesting. The, the story is unbelievable, actually. But do you mind sharing the story? No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been paragliding for. 12 years on and off, I think at that point, or it's a risk sport for sure, but just the, you know, being able to fly free as a bird and thermal up and float, you know, fly into the clouds. It was, you know, just an amazing passion. So it was probably outside of doing startups, you know, I would be, you know, any spare time, I'd, I'd be trying to go uh, take my paraglider in my backpack and go fly somewhere. So for those of that don't know paragliding, paragliding is the you know, big canopies where you're out on a hill or a mountainside and you try to catch a current and you basically jump off. Yeah, you kind of run run off the hill. On, and you're holding the, it's like a triangle or a harness, yeah, you're harnessed yeah. into it. Yeah, so hang gliding is the rigid wing uh, that you would kind of, you, you almost lie flat underneath. Uh, paragliding is the canopy, almost like a um, very elongated skydiving canopy in a way. So it's canvas, you know, it's it's ripstop nylon up there with lines connected to your harness and you're sat in it more just like a seat and you're flying. I loved it when I was doing it. And you could you know, fly all and as I did, fly all around the world and literally take just a backpack that it packs up in. So I take it on trips. And you know, potentially if you've got good place you can go either down at the coast or up in the mountains, you could go fly. I think my longest flight was probably five hours, probably about a hundred kilometers nearly. Uh, I think it was in Brazil at the time. So it's amazing. You know, imagine just flying, circling and figuring out how you move from one rising air current to the next, to, you know, to travel 
you know, this, you know, tens of kilometers, hundreds of kilometers type of thing. It was a, you know, definitely a thrilling sport, but also a very demanding, very demanding environment, very demanding skill um, to be able to control the canopy. You know, the air can be very turbulent. So I love the need to kind of master a very challenging skill in a very demanding environment. And that's why I love scuba diving. That's why I love snowboarding. It's kind of very similar dynamic. So, you know, I just headed off for a, I think it was a 10 day trip with a buddy that I got connected to, fellow pilot uh, who was from Colombia. He just started doing paragliding tours out of his hometown in Bucaramanga in Colombia, which is in the Colombian Andes, if I get it right, get the right mountain range. So we were there and my wife had come with me. Uh, Kerry had come along. She wasn't flying. So she was just usually in the chase car, long-suffering paragliding wife. Right. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun in the chase car. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was definitely the last trip she was ever going to be going on. And, and as it turned out, it was the last trip she ever had to go on. <laughs> but yeah, it was the last uh, penultimate day of the trip. And, uh, you know, I've been flying very, we'd done various different flights in different locations and we were just driving down to a new location. So I was, you know, flying in the direction of this new location, never flown this area before. The guy who had been flying, a, uh, uh, been in the area a, a month or so, um, one of the fellow pilots on the trip, we were flying around and he bombed out, kind of landed. I couldn't really see where he was landing. Um, so I said, oh, you know, I'll get, carry on. I'll fly a little bit further. You know, I'll fly the furthest today. You know, the old ego kind of kicks in a little bit. And so I carried on flying. So sorry, it's, it, so he lands because he's lost his air current? Yeah, I mean, he just, it's the challenge of paragliding is, you know, staying up. You know, when you're flying, the glider's always descending. So you've got to find air currents, thermals that are rising as the air heats up that are, that are rising faster than you descend. That's how you stay up. And same as a big glider with, you know, you see them flying, sailplane uh, flying in the air. So it was kind of fun, you know, when that's part of the challenge of doing cross-country flying is, you know, how do you figure out one thermal to the next before you hit the ground to find the next one to take you back up so you can then make it further along. So been bumbling around different areas, crossed each other a few times, and uh, he'd flown off and ended up landing. I just couldn't see where he was. And so are you doing this in the jungle of Colombia? It's in the mountain range. Um, so think of... Because I'm thinking, like, if you're flying over trees and you lose your air current, you're landing in the trees. Yep, pretty much. Done that. Been there, done that. And, yeah, I ended up throwing my reserve parachute probably a couple of months before this trip. Should have been a bit of a red flag, I guess, uh, in hindsight. Um, but, yeah, he just came over and got caught by the, uh, the, the air coming over a hill, which gets very turbulent. My canopy collapsed and ended up throwing my reserve and landing down in the trees. How high up in the area? 5,000, 2,000? A couple of thousand feet up at that point, yeah. But I think the highest I've been is probably over 10,000, in you know, because you're in altitude at that point already. Um, so, yeah, so he'd, he'd landed. I flew on, and I don't remember a lot. I, I have moments of recall, uh, you know, as I was, you know, leading up to the accident. I don't really recall everything that happened. I remember not being able to see where the my buddy had landed. Deciding to fly on. I remember being kind of over the backside of the hill, literally nothing but green trees below me, you know, getting low um, and thinking, okay, this is a little dicey. The next thing I remember, I was kind of, I'd managed, I don't remember, 
and then what happened in between. But then I managed to kind of get back towards the ridge flying into the air, uh, the direction of the wind. So I was, you know, coming up over the ridge line and, you know, low. So I was looking for somewhere to land. Um, and I was just coming over this kind of this knoll of a hill because I'd seen a little town. Again, this is in the middle of nowhere in the Andes. There's a little uh, town, village. So I thought what I thought was a, uh, a field that I could land in. So I thought, okay, great. So I head that way. And then the next thing I remember that came over this knoll of a hill was I saw power lines in front of me. And the sun was kind of coming down, so it was in my eyes. And power lines are, you know, when you're, you've got elevation there next to him, you know, that's why planes or skydivers, you know, it's the worst thing is you end up hitting power lines because you just cannot see them unless they're marked in some way. So, you know, I saw it in front, so my, now I'm a left, uh, right-handed, so I buried my brake handle, my control handle, which puts you into a very steep turn, potentially you can spin, but hey, that's better than you know, hitting the power line. What I didn't know, there was another set of power lines going down the right-hand side. So don't remember anything from that point forward until I woke, you know, woke up on the ground, but essentially piecing it together afterwards from kind of the photo evidence that we had, I'd hit those lines. I probably collided, bodily collided, shorted across two of the lines. My glider wrapped in the line because I was going over the knoll of a hill, fortunately, the lines weren't that far above the ground. So I essentially woke up sitting in my harness, like sitting on a deck chair on the on a hillside, you know, as a you know, tourist or something. And my glider was wrapped in the power lines above me, literally wrapped around them. And I was just, you know, sitting on the ground with my lines kind of going up toward the power lines. Obviously, I knew something had happened. You know, I'd crashed, you know, but I didn't know what. I don't remember being in pain, but I knew that, you know, something had, had obviously happened. So as I tried to release myself, my uh, left hand was just so firmly tight around the control handle that I had to kind of pry each finger open to get the control handle out so I could then get out of the harness and out of the canopy. Fortunately, some locals, I kind of vaguely, again, piecing it together, you know, I kind of remember some hearing some shouting before I had the accident, I think. But there was a couple of locals, I think, that had a truck that had seen me, they're coming in to fly, knew there were power lines. I don't know what the details were, but they came running up this hillside, just this red mud hillside, and were able to, you know, get to me. And I had my cell phone, and so not the smartphones of today, but, you know, my cell phone on me. And so they were able to call my wife, Kerry, in the chase car, who were about 30, 20, 30 minutes away. They were obviously spoke Spanish. I didn't speak a word of Spanish, really. Uh, so I spoke to my wife and said, okay, you know, I've had an accident. And she was like, oh my God. You were conscious enough to talk yeah, to Yeah, I'd come to at that point. So I, I remember calling and then saying, hey, I'd had an accident. And it's kind of, you know, she said, oh my God, have you broken your legs? And I was like, oh no, I'm fine. <laughs> but, you know, I had a, you know, I, you know, I knew I just didn't know what it what the issue was. But I said, you know, it, it's pretty serious. Um, but uh, yeah, she immediately because that's you know not uncommon. The fall is usually the fall that you're going to damage an ankle or a leg or something. Uh, yeah, it's never the descent. It's, yeah, always, the, it's always the it's the landing. It's the landing that, that <laughs> it's gets not the you. Fall. <laughs> you know, had her pass the phone to my uh, the guide that we were there with, my buddy, and I passed it to the locals because I had no idea where I was. It was Aratoka, I think, or something like that. But no idea because I've been flying cross country up in the air. So I passed my phone over and they were able to explain where we were. And 
ultimately what transpired, they took me in the back of their, uh, you know, classic kind of, you know, rare, yeah, rusted Colombian out. truck. <laughs> truck <laughs> two Colombians with cowboy hats and uh <laughs> rust, rusted out ford f-150 from the 70s yeah, pretty much <laughs> like a chevy truck or something like that uh but you know again i don't remember a lot of this so it's just little piecemeals that i remember but they got me to the local clinic in the town that i was trying to land in it was a medical clinic and uh you know they took me in and started cutting all the clothes off and stuff and obviously what had happened is i'd shorted across two lines and fried my arm and my leg um badly you know bad electrical burns um so all they could really do was just take it off and, and dress it and at that point uh, my wife and uh, the guy that we were with came in as well the place must have stuck i mean burnt flesh is not the most i couldn't again i no pain for me don't remember any smell or anything like that. I was that, just... Which is amazing that you had no pain. At least that I remember. <laughs> you just said earlier you had to pry your left hand off the brake, which makes you turn. But like, was your hand not burnt or did you have a glove on? Or like, did you know at that time? Yeah, I mean, I had gloves on, so I had no idea of what the damage was. I just knew that my hand was not working anymore. Um, I didn't know that my leg, I don't know if I tried to get up and walk, but I remember them, I was kind of in between the two guys as they carried me down the hill. So I had no idea kind of what the damage was, but I knew that obviously something serious had transpired, shall we say. As far as I can recall, all the way through the clinic, don't remember, again, no real sensation of pain, no real awareness necessarily of what was wrong other than they were cutting my clothes off and like, suit and everything else off um they couldn't do an awful lot for me and it was you know but they put me in the back of this ambulance like and kerry had to sit in the back with me you know and and it was a 45 an hour journey back to bukaramanga across these twisty windy country roads it was hot it must have stunk like high heaven in the back of the car in the back of the ambulance and so you know again i'm mostly out of it really um but Poor Kerry. Again, none of us really knew what what was going on, but uh, you know, she had to basically endure being in the back of this car as we were weaving our way back to the main city and the main hospital. And that's where you know we were able to finally go in and start to get like a sonogram thing where they could kind of show. They did. I remember laying in the stretcher, and they were they put this thing out into the hallway where I was laying and they started to kind of do a, I guess, sonogram of the arm to see what the blood flow was. And I'm like, you know, praying that it's okay. <laughs> Is your arm bandaged up and stuff? I don't remember. I still don't remember really seeing it. I can't remember the, f I got pictures of it because, you know, for a period I definitely was not looking at it. Um, you know, it just didn't want to see what it, what the damage was, but it was pretty burnt. You know, you could see, the veins were just black going down. You know, it's like a skeletal hand, almost like you've got a skeletal glove on type of thing. Um, so, you know, I was just looking at this thing, praying that, you know, the blood flow and it wasn't, it was just burned, but it wasn't too badly damaged. But we had, uh, in the end, three surgeries in Columbia um, where they took a, a vein graft from my leg to try and restore blood flow to the hand. Um, then that didn't really seem to work. So we thought maybe he'd put it in the wrong way around. So we took it back in and switched it around. And 
Uh, and the facility was amazing, and they had a hand specialist there. So you know, it's it's not. So th- this is not the image of a dilapidated hospital. Like it was top shelf. Nothing like what you have in the U.S., but still a a very a very good facility um, from that standpoint with a hand specialist. Um, so very fortunate from that standpoint too. But obviously there was a limit to what they could do. And I remember I think it was the third surgery. Again, they didn't speak great English. So Kerry had this, you know, dictionary that she was translating with, um, you know, like Spanish English dictionary that she brought with her. There's no Google translating. <laughs> and, you know, our buddy, if he was there, he was fluent. Oh, he was Colombian, so that was fine. But he wasn't there all the time. But what they got another doctor and he wrote on this piece of white, like a sheet of white paper, this kind of handwritten, that I gave them authorization to amputate my hand if necessary. And I had to sign that before I went in for my third surgery, I think it was. And I was like, holy moly. I remember, I think it was lying on the stretcher outside for that surgery. And I remember saying to the surgeon, like, you know, please save my hand. Uh, some something of, of I can't remember the exact words. But then as we were lying there, all the power goes out. <laughs> it was the weekend. Then had one surgery open at the weekend. The power goes out. The backup generators kick in. So I'm just laying there going, oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Then you know, they put you under and I don't, you know, and then I came out of that. You know, but, you know at that point, uh, my wife had started to put into gears. I unfortunately had Dan Medical Insurance, which you know, they, they will repatriate you in case of uh, uh, an emergency. So we were able, you know, I'd completely forgotten about it, I think, until after the second surgery, but we decided to put the wheels in motion to get medevaced out of Columbia and back to the U.S. Uh, when we ended up in Miami in Mercy Hospital. It took us two months to get back to the Bay Area. Okay, well, let's go, <laughs> so let's go back to Columbia for a minute because, like, you're going in for a third surgery. They want you to sign on a napkin that it's okay for you to amputate the hand. I wish I kept the note. It's like pigeon English. Oh my gosh. Put it in perspective, you're a computer programmer at this stage in your life, right? Yeah. This is what you do for a living. So like, where is your head? Power goes out. What's your recollection of where were you in your mind? And Carrie too. I mean, I guess together, like it's just... Yeah, probably it was harder on Carrie because I was pretty dosed, you know, at various stages, dosed up on... You know, morphine and morphine and tequila. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> As the patient in it, it was definitely harder for Kerry having to watch it. You know, two fun, you know, somewhat funny stories. Um, so after the first surgery, they did the vein graft to try and restore blood flow to the hand, and they put plaster cast and everything around the arm. So that was the first. So when in that more that afternoon, first surgery, come the evening. Uh, and they put you into these uh, automated medication machine. So you press a button and it will put morphine into the drip. So depending on your pain level, you can self-medicate. They only do so many shots an hour or whatever it was. So I'm there, you know, and obviously the, the, the uh, pain medication from the surgery is wearing off as the evening goes on. So I'm kind of pressing the button, kind of like, you know, you can't really move around a lot in the bed. And, you know, the thing would were. And I was like, okay, you know, I feel a little bit. And then it'd be like five minutes later, I'm like, God, this is really painful again. You know, it's kind of, I'd try and move around to try and, you know, just alleviate, you know, if I moved a little bit, alleviate the pain, so I press the thing again. You know, and get so many presses a, an hour. Um, but it were, I get a little bit of relief. And then and I'm like, 
So basically all the way through the night. And then in the morning, Kerry came in. I, I guess I explained to her that, you know, you know, still in pain. So she was, nurse came in, she was reading from a mal bad. You know, that was our, the limit of our Spanish translation. <laughs> right. So I think she got a doctor and they came in and they said, okay, you know, and I, I managed to kind of somehow articulate that we're still in pain, even though I was pressing the button. So they looked at the machine, uh, took out a little cartridge. It's empty. Then put it in properly. <laughs> so they then put it in. So basically all through the night, I you know, got a little bit of placebo relief for five minutes. And then it, so basically I went through the entire. So you were getting any morphine, but you did get five minutes. That's interesting, actually. The psychological relief of feeling like, you know, that it was okay, should feel better, but it didn't last very long. So, yeah, you know, again, I don't remember the mind's an amazing thing and that it dulls these painful memories. But but your level of uncertainty in that situation where you're like, I mean, they put the thing in wrong, <laughs> power goes out, you're signing on a napkin about, your, about severing your hand off. Like it's it's... Your whole career, everything you've done, middle of a startup, tech startup. I definitely felt bad for the fact that, you know, this was definitely a selfish pursuit to go off and do such a risky sport whilst in the middle of doing a startup type of thing. So, you know, there was definitely an element of, hey, I want to, you know, so sorry to my, obviously my carrier let my partners know what was going on. They, they were nothing but caring. Um, but, you know, obviously I felt an element of that. So that was probably more, as about as far as ahead as I, I didn't think about. Again, I still had my hand, so we never even thought about amputation at that point. We just, you know, just very badly burn, and hopefully we can save the hand. So I wasn't thinking that far ahead. But, but if they're, if you're signing on a napkin, yeah, I mean, it, it was the the possibility that I could lose. You know, I guess was there, but it wasn't something that I had. Um, even contemplated, I think, you know, like it. That so you probably, you figured the probability was not that high. That wasn't in my realm of experience to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm probably going to lose my arm or lose my hand here. I just, it was just a question of, you know, how the hell, you know, where do we go from here type of thing, you know? And so obviously they couldn't move me until I was medically stable. So they had to get the sign off from the doctors in Columbia to give approval to the medivac to get us kind of out. So that whole process took about five days. Um, so we were in Columbia, three surgeries, you know, five, six days, I think, by the time we got medivaced out. I would say for me, it, it was kind of, you know, reflecting back, it's not how I thought about it then, but reflecting back, obviously with hindsight, I think the first very, very early on, I had just accepted what had happened. Sure, there were lots of thoughts about why did I do that? What if? And I think Kerry had a you know harder time and probably still does to some degree hold on to some of this, which is the ability to blame others. It's like, it's not my fault. It's the guide that I would, my buddy that I'd met who was Colombian that done the guiding. We turn up and the week before he'd broken his foot flying. So we couldn't, he was the guy who was supposed to be leading me. He was there who I was to fly with. He should have been the guy that I was following. And if he landed, I would have landed with him type of thing. So it's his fault. You know, his partner, his wife, who was also a pilot, she'd had an injury. So, you know, she's on crutches. He's got a cast thing around his leg, you know, and we turn up. Carrie didn't want to come on this trip in the first place. You know, she had a, she's 
much more intuitive energetically than I am. So she didn't have a good feeling about the trip. I mean, of course I didn't listen to her. Um, I was determined to go do my own thing, shall we say, you know, that was how I, well, you're, who doing, I you're doing your sport, yeah. right? You know, so that's who I was yeah. back then for sure. You know, there were a lot of possibility to kind of say, it's not my fault. It's someone else's. Why did this happen to me? All of that kind of that cycle. And I think most people, all of us go through it, but I think I went through it very quickly. I was very fortunate. I think mindset wise, I'd been exposed to Tony Robbins. When I moved to the US, kind of early 2000, came across his goofy guy and thought, what a load of nonsense. But I, I do credit and say, you know, a lot of the CDs and stuff that I listened to gave me a mental framework that helped me get through this period. And a big part of it was I absolutely accepted what had happened and accepted and took responsibility that this was my fault. This was no one else's fault. I, at the end, as a pilot, you know, they always tell you and, at the end, you decide to take off. How you land, that's not optional once you've taken off. Taking off is optional. When, you know, once you're off the ground, you've got, you know, then you're committed. So at the end of the day, I kind of, I think I just, this has happened. There's no one else to blame. I'm just grateful that I'm still alive. At that point, given what I'd been, you know, I basically shorted across power lines. When I explained that to one of the doctors, I think it was at the, hospital how did electricity flow through your body from your left arm to your right leg and not stop your heart that doesn't make any sense so i kind of look at that and i think again easy in hindsight but even at the time i just remember being fairly centered on look this has happened there's no one to blame I just accept what's happened yeah there's nothing you can do about it now yeah i can't go back i, I can't rewind the clock um so it's just deal with the moment. I think I stayed very much, probably more so than any other time in my life, in the moment, which was here and now. Because if I look to the past, if I look to the past, then I'm always, you know, there, there's all the regret and the what ifs and the if onlys. If I went to your point, if I looked too far to the future, there was nothing but uncertainty. What the hell was life going to be like? Am I going to survive? I mean, this could have easily killed me. I would say if it wasn't for Kerry being there and being my advocate, it may well have. Um, I may not have made it out of Columbia alive, but to survive that type of accident and wake up on the ground without a broken bone, a back, neck, or, you know, you, you know, you know normally skydives hit power lines. It's not the power lines that kill them, it's the fall afterwards. I hit power lines, shorted across them, fell to the ground, and all I had was bad, bad burns. You know, all I had. You know, you said earlier, the kind of gratitude in a way. Not that I processed it that way, but there was just a lot of acceptance, I would say, early on for it's happened. There's nothing I can do now other than just move forward. You know, I couldn't be an advocate for myself. I had to rely on Kerry to be that advocate. And thankfully, she was a powerful advocate. But all I could do was just simply rely for the first time in my life. I would say, since you know, you're a baby type of thing. And I learned this again when we were in Mercy. It was like I essentially had to put my faith and rely on other people to look after me. Because there was nothing I could do to save myself at that point. I think so. A couple of point, points there is one, I think that there's a lot of you must build a lot of faith in humanity. Once you've gone through something like that and go, hmm, you know, this, you know, 
humanity is there and we help each other out. You know, it's not the, you know, there's, there's a lot of downside to, to humanity and school shootings, da, 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 but, but there is a lot of, you know, faith and hope and grace, you know, in humanity. But the other piece too, just reflecting on what you were saying is, is the, um, is this piece about, you'd made a comment about not looking too far into the future, uh, you know, because it'll create immense uncertainty. And it's, you know, so many people struggle. They don't have to lose a hand to, you know, it could be anything. It could be any kind of trauma. It could be a death in the family. It could be a business in, in your business. It could be marriage. A marriage, kids, whatever. Spending too much time in the past is just pain. The only thing that exists in the past is pain. There is, you know, valuable reflection to learn lessons so you don't repeat them. But, but looking too far into the future can also, you know, create a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of animosity, a lot of, it's an interesting takeaway for people to just go, you know, be careful of where you spend your emotional time and thinking time uh, because too much past, too much future can, not to say that you shouldn't be in there. In, you know, for me at that point in time, there was no, you know, psychologically, I had to be very protective of my psychological state. Again, did it intuitively, can't, can't say why necessarily, but I just knew that I'm here now and you just got to get through this, you know, this too shall pass, I guess is kind of that old phrase. And it doesn't serve me to go backwards, play the blame game. You know, when you're in an exciting place and you look to the future and it draws you forward to a better future, a better outcome, I think, you know, future pacing is an amazing thing. But there's also times of great uncertainty when, you know, you don't know um, that, you know, there's a lot of fear, you know, uncertainty, obviously in that environment, it's like going too far forward doesn't serve you at all. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine it was no good for me to say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be great. Don't worry. Three months from now, I'll be fine. That wasn't going to help type of thing. Cause it's, you know, your mental state will always go to the, the negative side, I suppose. So I just kept myself very much. You know, it's not that I didn't think, you know, there would be times then the mind would wander, but I would always come back to just the here. And were, were there some conscious strategies in that? Like uh, being, I, I would say, on guard of your state? That's how I can best describe it in hindsight. I think foundationally, I'd had a lot of mental strategies just from reading and listening to Tony's work. So I think that was foundational and that just became intuitive for me in the moment because I don't remember thinking in the moment what I was doing. I can only reflect on it later and say, okay, hmm, how did I get through that? Well, that's interesting. Now I can introspect and look at it and kind of say, well, in that moment, I really, I just accepted that this accident was caused by me. It wasn't an act of God. It wasn't, you know, it was just bad luck. Um, no one else to blame. I'm here now. I'm thankful for being alive. And now I've just got to get through this. And that's kind of what I remember kind of, you know, constantly processing in a way. Right. And so in the moments, like, because 
you know, that's on, on a macro level, you're like reflecting back going, but in the moment, are you, you know, is it, was there a, is there a question that you asked to keep yourself from bumpering outside of the present? I just stayed. You stayed in the present. Yeah. I mean, I, I was conscious of my limits very much. I mean, fast forward a little bit to time in Miami, certainly post amputation, even pre amputation, I would not, when they were deep breathing my hand and everything, I would not look because I knew I was not ready. Somehow intuitively knew I was not ready to see quite what damage I had done. I'd saw it in Miami. So you still hadn't seen it. I would kind of seen it rather in, in Columbia initially, but now they were literally debriding and taking all the dead skin and tissue away. Okay. So let's go to Miami. So you fly it, you fly. <laughs> oh my God. You fly it. I'm a sick guy. I'd probably look like, I'd be like, I, I'd have to see how they do this. It was a while before I could look. Yeah. So, so you, you leave Columbia, yes. arm intact, go to Miami, land, and you're at Mercy Hospital. Mercy Hospital in Miami. Um, Dan did an amazing job medivacking us out um, from this plateau in Columbia. You know, my first private jet ride, uh, or first ride on a private jet. Awesome. I don't remember much of it. I had too much morphine in the system. So yeah, we arrived in Miami. Obviously then it was kind of funny, you know, obviously part of all I'd heard around me for five days is just Spanish, you know, constant Spanish. Again, I didn't understand Spanish, unfortunately. Arrive in Miami thinking, thank heavens, uh, you know, we're, we're back in America, okay, not in the Bay Area, but we're back in the US. Awesome. Be able to, you know, understand what people are saying. Yeah, communicate. Communicate. I mean, that's got to give you a, oh. a lot of level of certainty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we get into the ambulance and they're speaking Spanish. Oh. <laughs> it's Miami. <laughs> so it was like, really? <laughs> Obviously, they took us to the hospital and then we got introduced to, and again, I, I count all the fortuitous circumstances, which was, you know, one, I survived. Two, I ended up in, a, in actually a pretty good hospital in Columbia. There was a hand specialist there that was working on me who happened to have gone to a conference in the US and met one of the top hand specialists who happened to be and work at a Mercy Hospital um, who connected in and had already talked to this guy and got him to take me as a patient, even though he wasn't taking patients, as a hand specialist in the US um, because he'd met this guy at the conference. And that's, told- that's a lot of grace at play right there. So I look at that and just say, you know, all of those incredible. So this guy... Him was my hand surgeon. He then brought in this other top plastic surgeon. Didn't need him originally, but basically I, you know, a lot of skin grafts and stuff in various places down the line. But basically both of them were working on me. You know, literally came in, I think we spent the next three or four days in ICU. Kerry was sleeping on a cot in the ICU. Again, God bless her. They were basically debris coming in and debreeding. So basically in the ICU would come in. I would not look. Can you explain what that is? I, I don't know what it is. It's basically yeah, taking scalpels and cutting away all the dead skin because it you know basically it, it's electrical burn. So it, the, what they don't know what's going to survive. You don't want to leave dead skin because then it can go to necrosis, which can then lead to gangrene or or basically poison the blood, and then you die. So you know they're basically every day basically coming in and just cutting away my leg and my arm, what doesn't seem to be alive anymore. So it was 
surgeries every day, you know, debridements every day. Uh, and then they put me in hyperbaric treatment twice a day, which is oxygen therapy under pressure and uh, compression chambers, which is great for wound care. It was a tough toll um, for that first two, three weeks, I think, in Miami, as they were just trying to figure out, is the hand, will it recover type of thing? And, you know, at that point, Kerry had to find somewhere, you know, like a long stay place that she could book into. And this is where, you know, again, Columbia was amazing. But when I look at the duty of care of the people in the hyperbaric chamber, the doctors, you know, we're still in touch with some, you know, one of the doctors he passed away recently, unfortunately, but we stayed in touch with some of the people that were giving us the care. And I just look at and just say, I get their nurses and doctors. I get they have a duty of care, but they went above and beyond to look after myself, Kerry. They would drive Kerry backwards and forwards occasionally. You know, this guy would, you know, the top hand zone would come in end of his shift, like 12 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning, come in and check, maybe do something with me and then offer to take Kerry home. I'm more grateful that the care they showed for Kerry as much as the care they showed for, you know, I reflect back now and it, I'd never experienced that. I had a pretty selfish you know, selfishly driven, motivated person did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. You know, that was my, my self-drive and you know, drove a lot of my success in life. And that was a wake-up call to see people that just had, they were just wired differently to me. Yeah, wow. That's, that almost brings tears to my eyes. Like it's, I mean, that's humanity, right? That's the, uh, that's the good side of humanity. Like that is the, the beauty that we often don't hear about. And we were there for nearly two months in Mercy. So we got to know these folks pretty well and, you know, had, had good, you know, good rapport and, and chat. And but they were very much part of the support system. We didn't have anyone around us. All of our friends were in Bay Area. A couple of them flew in. You know, my family was in Europe. My mom came in, my brother came in. But mostly it was just Carrie and I in a place we'd never been to before, really. And so they were part of the support system. She was my support system. They were the support system for her incredibly powerful that's beautiful shout out to mercy hospital yeah and the staff there i mean absolutely incredible i think it was probably after about eight surgeries don't know how many debridements but eight main surgeries where they were basically saying we think you should amputate we don't know quite how this hand is still alive kerry's you know does she's a massage therapist or has trained as massage therapy does a lot of energy work she called someone in to come and do energy healing on me. She'd got me these homeopathic treatments. So you know, she was doing everything to try and save my hand at that point, obviously. But it got to the point where, um, you know, the surgeons, were, the prognosis was not looking good, should we say. And I remember the, my hand was just, could look at it kind of a little bit at that point. It was just black and basically just raw, like just a, so burned like any muscle on it or anything it just looked like yeah i mean it was still the hand was there at that point but it was just fried i mean just red raw you know they obviously debrided and cut away stuff and the hand was just like you know it was just rigid um i had no control obviously of it there's no detectable blood flow to the hand yet the hand is still kind of alive they didn't quite know why basically to prove the point put a needle in in the vein of the hand, <laughs> there was no blood flow. <laughs> uh, I can, you know, it was to demonstrate to carry kind of thing more than anything. But the choice was ours, you know, do we continue to fight um, to save my hand or do I choose to, 
had to amputate. We got to chew on that one for a few days before, you know, the, they wanted to schedule the surgery. Hardest decision in the world, but when you get clear about what's important, becomes the actually a really easy decision at that point. And right or wrong, what I was, you know, I just want to get back to life. I want to get back. It was just taking a toll physically, mentally. I just thought, you know, I can't keep doing this. I want to get back to life. I want to get back to the Bay Area. I want to get back to my startup. If I continue to keep the hand with an indeterminate prognosis of what, you know, what would it even be functional? It would just be this, you know, this balled up hand that had no use type of thing. I could be in hospital for nine months as they try to work and save it and see what's, you know, you know, by the time you get through all of that, I could die in the process. You know, there's nothing, you know, the, if, if I get an infection or the hand starts to, you know, truly is necrotic, then you know, obviously that blood poisoning, you know, all of that, you have to kind of weigh up. But at the end, it was a simple decision for me, which is what's the quickest way to get back to life. I want to get out of hospital. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't think I can do, keep going with these surgeries. And again, wasn't, I didn't realize, you know, it's like anything in life, you know, but I know that what I know now, um, but I just thought, okay, one more surgery, we amputate, I'm done. I can start healing. We can get, you know, I don't want to spend nine months in hospital. So, you know, for me, I'd made the decision of, okay, the quickest way to get back to life is for the amputation. I had no frame of reference to know what it would be like as an amputee. But it just seemed better than you know, the path we were on, should we say, of just surgery after surgery after surgery. Talked it through with Carrie and kind of said, I think, you know, amputation seems to be the best. She was still fighting to save the hand. And then as we, and she doesn't really remember this. Um, I remember it pretty vividly. So I don't think I was hallucinating. Um, but I remember we were laying outside the surgery uh, to go in for the amputation. And uh, she was there, you know, waiting with me, holding my hand. Uh, and she kind of looked at me and said, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's no going back. And even like internally, I kind of was like, no shit, Sherlock. What came to me was, it's okay, we have to let it go. And that idea of letting go of something that no longer served me was and I, you know, it's been an anchor, you know, it's just been something I always come back to, you know, through that experience was I didn't lose my hand. I let go of something that was no longer going to serve me. You know, as I look back and frame up kind of what I went through, there were really three things, three stages that I think helped me get through everything was accept what has happened and take responsibility for it. Don't blame, you know, don't blame anyone. Don't even blame yourself type of thing, but just accept what has happened forgive yourself and all those around you. And that those were the two things that kind of happened in, in Colombia and as we're going in mercy and, you know, how could you not when you're surrounded by such love and care? And then the third one is, you know, letting go of something that no longer served me. So it's, you know, those three things, you know, through business, through life, now are always my anchor of accept, forgive, let go. That's a very profound perspective. I mean, especially the last one, because we've talked about the other two, but letting go of something, which seems so trivial, but the way you phrase it, the way you, and the way you, maybe you framed it in your mind of it no longer serves you. I don't think a lot of people get to that stage. They let go of stuff, but they don't let go of it. Exactly. Let it sit in their mind still. Uh, and it may not come back as often. It may, may they may not live on it every single day, 
but it still circulates back. And, you know, I had a friend of mine on the podcast who, who had uh, lost the use of his legs. And every year he has a party called the smash anniversary. Uh, he got in a, an accident on his motorcycle, once. but he celebrates because he's still alive. Not, you know, every year when that anniversary comes back, it's a shitty day because you have regret or you have, you know, anger or blame or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, but, but that distinction of letting go of something that no longer serves you is super powerful. I've used that, that three-step process in a way in business context, in life, in other areas of life. But it really, you know, that was the most powerful embodiment of it for me of just accept, forgive, let go, and then you can move on. And, you know, this is a big theme for me. I think early in my recovery, once I did get finally back to the Bay Area and out of hospitals, was the idea of not just surviving, but thriving through the adversity that I'd faced. And I think most people get stuck in, I've, I've survived, I'm a survivor. And it's like, that's amazing. Like, we're all surviving. If you're still alive, we've all survived. You know, we've all survived something in life. You know, mine's very visible. Other people's is, you know, psychological, whatever it may be. So it's like, it's not just about surviving. It's about being able to move on and thrive and, and take what's happened to you as an experience and really turn it into something beautiful. And I think you, you can't do that if you're still holding on or you're still blaming or you haven't fully accepted, you know, what's happened. So that's why I say, you know, it's, it's, you know, as I go through, whether it's a failure of a startup, it's like accept, forgive and let go. And sometimes though, you know, some, sometimes they're harder, you know, one step's harder than some of the others. Um, but if you can go through that process and, you know, for some people it's psychological, it's letting go of an emotion or it's letting go of a relationship, you know, intimate or otherwise that no longer serves you and just recognizing that, Hey, as I said, it's the easiest decision in the world when you get clear of, your, of what, what's important. What's important. And that's, that's, that's an important piece. Rather than getting hung up on the small details, going, okay, what's really important in life? And get clarity on that and then move forward from it. And I think, you know, I've learned so much from, you know, then getting connected with other amputees, um, traumatic or, or otherwise, um, and others with disabilities. Um, and you're, you know, so contrast is an amazing thing. You know, I, I look at, you know, okay, I lost my hand. People look at me who are fully able-bodied, should we say, and they go, oh, look at this guy, you know. And I, you know, took up doing triathlons and doing races uh, a few years after my accident, endurance sports, on the basis that people would look at me and kind of say, well, if this guy can do it with only one arm, what, what excuse do I have? I should, I should get out there and do that. Um, but then, you know, I got connected with people with no arms, you know, no arms and no legs with four prosthetics, two prosthetic arms, two prosthetic, and I can go, holy shit, and this guy's up walking around and he's got, you know, his two, and you just think, contrast. And, uh, you know, you, yeah. Know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you think you got it bad. It's pretty easy to find others that have gone through much worse. Yeah. And you look at this guy and he's the happiest guy around. You know, it's like, you know, he was born that way type of thing. So we knew no different. And it's just like, that's absolutely incredible. So I've been blessed to, get connected in communities of, of uh, you know, people, you know, like people who, you know, similar situations and you just take inspiration from. And in a small way, I try and, you know, provide a bit of inspiration for others through the things I do, which is, hey, I'll do, you know, I still do the, I don't fly anymore, but, you know, I still do the things that 
you know, the adventure sports I love to do, snowboarding, scuba diving, you know, triathlons, Ironman distance, up to Ironman distance triathlons. And I, you know, now I get to do all those things with a different, slightly different perspective, which is, hey, if I'm doing this, what excuse have you got? I don't do it because I want to, you know, someone come out and say, hey, you inspired me. I mean, sure, people do at times and that's awesome. But it's just knowing that, you know, just being out there and doing what I do and, and you know, be the change you want to see in the world, as they say, um, hopefully it'll, it'll inspire someone else and you know, they make a change in their life. And you did the Ironman in Hawaii, right? In Kona? Uh, last year. Yeah. What's the, what are the distances again on that? 2.4 miles swim. Uh, to start with in the ocean. And you don't use any prosthetic for your swim? No, not allowed to, yeah. I don't allow you to use anything in the swim. Um, so, yeah, two, 2.4 miles, one arm. That's, uh, that's a long way. That's, <laughs> I, can't get, I can't get 60 feet in the pool. <laughs> you, you, you get 1.2 miles out to the turnaround, and you think, that's a long way to get back. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, and so, you know, that's a discipline of being in the moment. Because if you, you know, if you get too focused on where you are in the swim or how much further you've got to go, that's a mind game. Uh, so, you know, that's a great discipline of just, just. I, yeah, I wouldn't, I would have never thought of that. That's interesting. You just got to keep counting the strokes and just keep going until you get to the end of that. Um, and then you got a two point, uh, 100, sorry, 12 mile bike through lava fields, up, up the side of a volcano. And then you think you're going to come downhill and then you realize that actually you're just coming down into the wind. So you've got 112 miles of slog on the bike. Um, I think it, the temperature hit over 100 when, I was, uh, when we were doing it last year. And then you get off of the bike and you do a full marathon, 26.2 miles, various roads up and down, more hills than I than I believe there was when we drove the course it didn't look like there were hills there but when you're running you know those those small little rises uh, end up being pretty big hills well, especially after 112 miles of biking and two plus miles as well i don't do well as well in the heat and that was a hot hot humid day so it sucks it out of you but uh, did it you know cross the finish line and do you run it the whole way or can you at the end of all that activity can you actually I can't. <laughs> you don't have, the, yeah, the stamina to make the full run. Just yeah, I mean, I, I think I managed 12 miles to keep kind of a run jog, you know, a walk-run pace. Um, but uh, this hill just kept on going. And, and I just like, yeah, kidding. Just, I just saw this snake of runners just going up. It's, it's kind of this, you're running on the freeway at that point and you're Queen K and you're just a snake of people going up and then down and then you see them go up. And I just, I'm walking <laughs> So uh, I managed to run the last mile. <laughs> Did you? Dude, you completed it. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy to me that you can do that swim, you know, with one arm, keep your balance in it. I mean, you're sure, obviously you train for it. And then, and the bike, like, so you must have a. Yeah, yeah. I can wear a prosthetic on the bike that just allows me to kind of, I'm not as stable so it's it's definitely challenging in the wind there but i kind of sit in my aero bars with my little prosthetic hooked over the bar so it gives me some stability and then just pedal away but yeah i lost a lot of muscle tissue on my right leg and they took a big muscle and skin graft from my uh, left leg to put around my arm so you know, my only one good arm used to be this arm until i broke the collarbone snowboarding so yeah now i don't have any good limbs really <laughs> Dude, you are, it's unbelievable. Your like your courageousness 
it's overwhelming. Actually, I wanted to ask you, so you come home, you obviously like you're a pro you're a computer programmer. Yeah. You're on a keyboard all day long. And then how mentally did you reinvent yourself to, to get through that piece of it? I don't recall any friction there. Started going back into the, into the office three months after the accident. I'm still going through recovery. Couldn't go in, couldn't do a full day's work, but could go in two, three days. Kerry would drive me just because I, then I could socialize and be around my arms in a sling and bandaged up. But I was never the fastest typist in the world. You know, I would be you know, one finger, two fingers on each hand type thing, pecking, pecking at the keyboard. So now I'm just four fingers on one hand. I'm about the same, you know, speed. So it really. Instead of two on two, two fingers on two hands, you're four fingers on I'm, one I'm hand. just more dexterous <laughs> with the one hand now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it didn't really. And, you know, with programming, you spend more time thinking than you do typing. When I started writing and, you know, I still got half a memoir written and probably about 30 plus thousand words or whatever. So typing a book, on the other hand, is all either handwriting, which is mostly what I do, and then transcribing. So that's when you're really speed of typing. You know, I'd probably appreciate a second hand if I still had it, but uh, then I wouldn't be writing a book about losing a hand. Good point. Very good point. Um, So the three pieces there, accept, forgive, let go. Which one was the hardest? Which one do you struggle with most today? I think from my accident, I really, I think I'm clean. Yeah. I just mean in life. Like when you, yeah, when you're, I mean, cause you, I mean, it's, you said it's your formula kind of that you use consistently. And I think it's a great formula by the way, but I mean, not everything's easy. It varies. I think forgiveness can sometimes come hard, whether that's of yourself or others. So in the business context, forgiving the people I'd worked with, ultimately, I think it probably all comes down to letting go because, you know, that's where you get clean, I think. Um, but sometimes you, you know, you can't let go until you can really, you know, particularly if it's an emotional, you know, a relationship thing, not necessarily intimate, but just, you know, a relationship breakdown is kind of just being able to forgive and love that other person for who they are and who they were so that then, you know, that gives you the ability to let go. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of, oh yeah, I've let go of that. Yeah, I, I know it's good. I'm over that. Right. You know, usually I find acceptance of, I'm pretty pragmatic. Hey, no, there's no going back. This has happened. Okay, let's move forward. So I don't get too hung up on the what ifs of the past. Fortunately, it's just the way my mind is wired. Um, but forgiveness can be a challenge at times. And then letting go, you know, sometimes it's taken me years to be able to truly feel, you know, that not energy, you know, to not have energy around that situation or that relationship or whatever it was, and just be able to wish the best for that person and to be able to truly just kind of feel, yeah, you know, I've let that go. So I, you know, I it's taken, I think some people, it takes a lifetime and they don't get it. Uh, you know, there's probably some things that I'm still probably won't be a lifetime and still won't get. Um, so I think probably letting go is the hardest to get point to get to, because it's the culmination of everything that you've, you've got to have done to get there. So yeah, let go. That's a, that can be a tough one. Yeah. I found for me, it was, um, forgiveness, but 
mostly forgiveness from to myself. That was probably the big one that, you know, had made a, a massive change for me in being able to move on or, um, and not just move on like in one instance, but in, you know, it, to make a massive leap in my life, uh, in my own growth, uh, which then ultimately affects, you know, I mean, especially all your intimate relationships. But, uh, but that for me was the forgiveness of myself was, was kind of, kind of the biggest one, but. The one I think a lot of people miss out on is like, how can you, you know, truly love someone else unconditionally if you can't love yourself unconditionally? Or how can you truly forgive someone else if you can't forgive yourself first? Um, and it is sometimes the hardest one that we get hung up on. It's 100% true. You know, I've seen, seen the example where, you know, somebody puts like a $5 bill or something in their hand or, or anything, this Kleenex, and you put a Kleenex in your hand but if I'm gripping onto it, you're gripping onto what you're holding onto inside. You know, I can neither give nor receive to someone or in my intimate sphere or in any situation in business, whatever. So, you, you know, I mean, I guess that goes to your letting go, but, but for me, I had to forgive myself for all yeah. the, for all the shit that I judged myself on. Yeah. <laughs> we are judging machines as human beings, I'm afraid. How do people find you online? I mean, I, I, it, your story is freaking fascinating, man. I mean, you know, I love you. It's like I've known you for years and you're one of my best friends. But every time I hear the story, I'm just like, wow, it's crazy. Um, thank you. Um, likewise. And onehandedblogger.com uh, is my, I started that. I, it's kind of a little funny aside, but before I had my accident, um, obviously, tech scene in the Bay Area, blogs were this big thing. People were trading blogs, you know, it was all new. And I was like, oh, I'd love to create a blog. I just don't have anything to write about. <laughs> you know, it was about two weeks before my accident. So. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess uh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, so I started, a, you know, a blog. So it's got like, you know, back in 2006, it was kind of reflections on the accident and my recovery. And now it's more about the sports and races that I do. So I don't post super frequently at the moment, but it's got kind of my race re recap from the Kona Ironman. So, but yeah, I th you know, that's probably if you want to find me or, you know, subscribe to my little updates that I send out every now and then you can find me there. Um, otherwise LinkedIn. Nice. Nice. Is there anything we missed with anything? I'll tell you one funny aside that I, I you know, was in the back of my mind to mention, so hopefully Kerry won't mind. Uh, I didn't find this out until years later. Um, uh, actually, when I was writing my, partway through writing my memoir, I was talking to Kerry about some of the, you know, because her experience of, of, is very different from mine. You know, her perspective and what she remembers versus what I remember. I said, she remembers stuff I don't remember. I it's remember probably almost like two completely yeah. different. It's like, like, you know, that the movie where the train doors and two different life journeys. And yeah, I mean, she has a very different, you know, remembers very different parts of the, of the experience we went through. But she was, we were talking and I was talking about writing bits of the book and using her to help me kind of remember things as well as looking at my blog posts. And she told me, and this was probably 2003, 23, probably five years ago, five, six, five years ago now. Um, and she'd never told me this. Um, but when we were in 
Columbia the day of my accident. So a couple of things happened. Normally, every before I took off every day, we would exchange a kiss. You know, I'd give her a kiss and then I'd go off and fly. And then she'd be in the chase car and following around. Well, that particular day, camera got dirty or something. She'd gone back to the car to get a cloth. And then I took off without giving a kiss. So I, I remember distinctly thinking, well, hope I don't go and kill myself because, you know, I didn't, didn't say goodbye. <clears throat> so, you know, I was like, oops. Um, and then, of course, the accident hits. But what I didn't know is that morning at breakfast, uh, Kerry told me again five years ago, so a long time after the accident, that she'd had enough at that point and had decided that, you know, after this trip, when we got back, she was going to ask for a, a separation and was planning on leaving me. Can't blame her, I have to say, given, you know, what I, the, the way I lived my life at that point, I guess, and the way, you know, we were together. But um, yeah, she, uh, she decided she'd had enough. Um, you know, then at that point, had my accident, and uh, I guess there was no escape for her. <laughs> She's probably sitting in Columbia Hospital going, for fuck's sake. I, was, I thought I was I, out. It's I like was being, so close. It's like being in the mob. They keep dragging me back in. <laughs> uh, and, you know, again, you know, we're, we're, we're better. You know, we are obviously still together now and you know the the better for it i wish i mean if it wasn't for the accident i think i'd be pretty con- i pretty bet that we would not be together as a couple and she also told me which i never knew about either in mercy when we got there uh i don't know who of the staff but some of the doctors or the staff were talking to her and saying look uh, you know we understand if you want to leave and leave your husband it happens and some people just can't you know they can't take this and and again she didn't tell me any any of this until you know way 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 after after the accident obviously in more recent times so you know she went through her journey for sure yeah well obviously it says a lot about her character for who she is to stick by you and care for you and get you through that when probably some of the times she just wanted to kick you in the side (laughs) of the head (laughs) I said I, I promised her in in from my hostel bed that I would never fly again, and I uh, I've up, definitely upheld that promise. So, but how 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 did it change you then? Like, what what do you think has then? What's been the result that do you think has saved the marriage? Because obviously, you know, that was a long time ago. It was I mean, it were what are we fifteen? It was fifteen? No, yeah, for, for seventeen years ago. You know, you've stayed together a long time since. So obviously, it wasn't the 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 accident that kept her there for 17 years, what, what do you think have been the distinctions that you I'd have to have a conversation with her, but for what, but from your perspective and how you've changed inside this whole experience and evolved. After the accident, you say, Hey, nothing's changed and everything's changed. It was kind of that paradox. If I was still the same person, I was absolutely, you know, still driven and, got back to doing my startup and doing the, you know, the career and, and startup stuff and being, you know, striving for success. Um, but at the same time, everything had changed, you know, clearly I lost a hand and, you know, getting on with a very different life. I would say that was the catalyst for the beginning of a journey. I wish I could say I was enlightened enough that, you know, some people, you know, want to hear the story which isn't true for me of i woke up on the ground and and i and i found god and i was enlightened and realized the error of my ways i was still pretty conceited i think you know pretty selfish 
going into the accident, I think the accident was a was a beginning of of an introspection to realize that my actions can have a lot of repercussions for other people. In this case, Kerry, my mom, my family, my immediate friends, my business partners, my desire to go and pursue what I saw as, hey, this is, I, I do whatever I want to do. It's like, yeah, you can go through life with that perception and that drive. But I was blind to the cost, the toll that it was taking on my intimate relationship and my relationship with others. And that was definitely a kind of, you know, a wake up call. Is you know, I very much believe I'm not particularly religious by any means, but I do kind of believe in, you know, there does seem to be a higher power of something going on of, you know, the universe is giving you some lessons. If you don't get them, it's just gonna knock a bit harder. I think I had a few wake up calls along the way, including, you know, throwing my reserve parachute and that, like there was some little knocks some from the universe. Taps saying, on the shoulder. Hey, hey. hey you might want to. Hey. <laughs> so I say, you know, if you don't get it, it's just, you know, the knocks just get harder. Um, you know, fortunately I survived this one, but it, that was the beginning until you kind of see, okay, yes, I can absolutely pursue the things I want to do, but I have to be cognizant of the toll and the cost that it's taking on others. And I have to decide is that, is that pursuit worth it versus just saying, you know, this is what I want to do. And so, you know, and again, I wasn't a bad person. I don't think, you know, if you talk to Kerry, it's not like I was a terrible person. We had a terrible uh, relationship. It's just, I was very selfish with my own time. I did what I wanted to do in that case, pursuing paragliding. Coming out of that, I was a lot more aware, you know, I, you know, starting of, of awareness of, okay, it's not just me here. <laughs> There's not just me in this relationship. <laughs> it's like the deleveraging of the ego. That's the beginning of it. Those, where that's the tops on the shoulder, where maybe just the, hey, you pulled your parachute there, dumb nuts. Like, that gets us into trouble. And again, I got a few gentle taps and then it took the big one, you know, a big hit to kind of give me the wake up call. But I would say it still took us a lot of time. I mean, that was after a, We'd been together a good while, a decade or so at that point. So there was a lot of past experiences that we had to overcome with each other. And that's, uh, you know, the second half of the memoir, if you like, that I have yet to write is kind of that part of the journey in a way, which is, look, the, the, the accident, I did not wake up an enlightened individual who'd seen the errors of my way, but it was a kick up the backside that kind of got me on a path of self-reflection and introspection and very much interested in personal growth. You know, and that's, we went to our first UPW, Unleash the Power Within, that Tony Robbins runs, even though I'd seen, you know, listened to him a lot. Never been to a live or events. Like both Kerry and I in June, so the accident was in February, went to a UPW, and part of the UPW is a firewalk. So here's me kind of arm bandaged up, nth degree burns, uh, doing a firewalk. You know, so you could say maybe I didn't change that much. You know, I then went on a journey, I think, of self-development on self. You know, I had to focus on myself first. That was the realization. So I got very much immersed into that. And that's obviously where we connected through that world in 2009 um, as we were continuing on that journey. Um, and the two of us have, you know, we've, we've had some close calls. But I think probably what keeps us together is we've, both given up on each other at different times, but we've never both given up on each other at the same time. And so there's always one that's pulled the other back into the relationship. 
um, until we could get to the point where I think we finally, through a whole bunch of different other circumstances, nothing to do with my accident necessarily, but again, that was a catalyst of just, I found myself, Carrie found herself, and only when we found ourselves could we come back to f- and find each other in an intimate relationship. And that, you know, was, was almost a catalyzed nearly a decade after my accident. So, you know, we had to hang in there um, and fight for each other at different times as we went through that journey before we truly, I think, found who we are together now and the relationship we now have based on, you know, a lot of life experiences. And, you know, Kerry went through some challenges as well, you know, health challenges as well through that time. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I wish I was smarter and I could say, yeah, just took an accident and, and everything was right again. And, you know, it makes great story, but it's not reality, I don't think. It's like the startups, you know, come back to the business side and say, hey, that was an overnight success. Yeah, 10 years in the making. It's like, you know, where we are now in our relationship. Hey, that's amazing. Yeah, you should have seen the previous 20 years. It's not, it's not the, <laughs> the movie fairy tale story of, hey. You want to see the sausage or the making of the sausage? Right, right, exactly. There's probably a whole other conversation there of, of unwinding the ego, actually, uh, of, you know, that whole process of what you went through. And um, I think we have uh, content for an, another conversation. And I mean, it's, this has been amazing. Uh, I think for anybody listening out there, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to draw on f- from your life story and, or what we talked about today. There's more story to come. There's, a lot of things, you know, deep in what we spoke about that people can extrapolate for their life, for their intimate life, for their business life. There's, you know, and I encourage anybody listening that if they ever want to reach out and learn more more about startups or whatever from Kieran, um, you know, he's got, he's a wealth of information, but love to have you back. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Love having you here. Appreciate the conversation, man. It's been fun. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast, is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.